This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Inji John, author of Cities in the Anthropocene, New Ecology and Urban Politics, published this year by Pluto Press. Dr. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Stentor. Thank you so much for inviting me. So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Yes, um, <clears throat> my name is Inji, and I work as a lecturer in international urban politics at the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Center for Cities in the land of Orangiri people. Uh, my work centers around how to understand politics in a more performative sense, um, so how new identities and initiatives can emerge uh, amidst of or despite of the existence of plurality of different groups and desires in cities. I mostly work on urban environmentalism and disaster planning, or more conceptually, what it means to plan in or plan for the uncertainties or complexities of contemporary urban life. Um, I came to write this book for mainly two reasons. Um, I think, first of all, I think the new ecology or more than human ideas have been around for long time, um, but I haven't really seen them directly being applied to urban planning context, except for the the works of Robert Beauregard at Columbia or Nuja Mars at Warwick. So I think I wanted to extend their work through talking with planning practitioners in different cities. And secondly, I think I always struggled with the idea of uh, what it means, uh, what local really means, um, because I think a lot of academic literature talk about local social entities as um, uh, kind of like a puppets of larger uh, systems that are early knowable behind our desk. Um, but I think uh, there is a, um, I think this kind of approach of, you know, something that is early knowable behind our desk is a continuation of kind of the Western tradition. So um, I think I was more on the side of the situated uh, understanding of uh, the word uh, in the sense that I believe in the nobility of how every single individual interacts with 
their situated environments and reinvent their own realities through movement and action. So within the belief of heterogeneous and ever-evolving ontologies, there is a possibility of what we call chance of space as proposed by Doreen Messi. Okay, well, you've just kind of set up some of my next few questions that I wanted to ask there. Yeah. Uh, so let's start off with the this concept of new ecology that's yes. in you know the subtitle, and you just mentioned it. And so since there have been a lot of different ideas or concepts of ecology over the years, could you tell us what the specific type of new ecology that you're drawing on in this book is, and you know what are the, some of the major claims made in this new ecology that you think are really uh, important? Yeah. Um, yes, as you mentioned before, this new more than humanism has been proposed by many people, uh, notably uh, Braidotti um, and Anna Ching and Jane Bennett. Um, for me, I think I learned a lot from Bruno Latour and Anna Ching, Jane Bennett, and John Dewey. Um, what I like about it is that it really questions the essentialist division between human or non-human or culture or nature. Um, because it highlights how we are intricately intertwined with one another through co-evolution processes. So new ecology really asks us about um, the question of responsibility as a situated and grounded practice. So not as a top-down or universal norm that we have to accept without question. What's really useful for me is that how new ecology helps us uh, pay attention to our everyday or immediate surroundings. Um, so the pro-environmental actions that we do in urban setting should be fueled by and not disconnected from our everyday experiences, uh, you know, including water, sewer, electricity, or disaster planning, or all the kind of uh, immediate goods that we want to value in cities, uh, this has to be connected with um, what, we, what we normally perceive as pro-environmental initiatives. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things you do is then you take this approach to e ecology, which you know, has this aura of being really kind of radical and, and cutting edge, you know, when you think of many of the people that are citing some of these same, uh, you know, theorists like Latour and so forth that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, so you take this and for you, it leads into a very pragmatic approach to environmental politics and that it's kind of a, a way to engage people who wouldn't be interested in policies that get labeled, you know, green or environmental. So can you tell us a bit about how this connection works between this new ecology and this uh, approach to politics that kind of gets around some of the existing conflicts about things that, you know, come with that environmental label on them? Yeah, I think um, I'm going on a very colloquial note here. Um, uh, I think what's really interesting for me to visit kinds of politically conservative cities uh, was that they have to deal with um, the consequences of climate change or climate crisis. Um, but um, because of their political climate, they have to invent new narratives or um, kinds of narratives that link the immediate socio socioeconomic needs with 
more long term, longer term, uh, re- reflected uh, social good. Um, so I find it really interesting how they use, uh, you know, purposefully not really using the word the environment or nature, um, and they use kind of. Um, uh, wording such as you know low impact development, on-site stormwater management, uh, flood buffer, uh, riverside parks, native plants or landscaping—all um, of these things that people can sense uh, in everyday life—and um, they connect that. Um, uh, they they use the, the supposedly this kind of neutrality of material things that we find uh, in cities uh, as a way to advance uh, environmental agenda. And sometimes they don't even really mention to the people they communicate with, like their ulterior motive is the environmentalism. It's more about um, you know how we live, how we are going to live together, and it's not kind of I'm going to. Um, uh, impose uh, my ideas on you, but it's more like persuasion of um, these kind of things are really, you know, makes you feel good. So um, maybe uh, this is something that you want to reflect on. And in the end, I think um, this kind of cultural or atmospheric uh, approach to uh, environmentalism uh, can be a source of more political possibility. Yeah, there's a really interesting, I think, material dimension to what you're talking about here in terms of the you know the, the types of politics that you're describing but then also in the kind of roots of why we need to do this anyway because as you said you're talking about cities that are in very uh, conservative regions and you, you point out that that's often that's not just like they have this ideology of conservatism that that has like a real material basis because these are things like you know, you're writing about Tulsa, Oklahoma, the big industry everywhere around there is oil and gas. And so people's like actual jobs are dependent on a thing that's also tied up in causing all of the climate change problems. And then so it's like a material cause of the, the conflict. But then you're looking to material objects as a way to create the solutions and get around the political conflict. Is that a, a fair summary? Yeah, I think it's a fair summary. And also, um, you know, the book is kind of the propositional note. So some of the things that I don't talk about, um, I think, like, you know, I forgot to talk, not, not forgot, but probably, you know, I try not to emphasize too much. <clears throat> is this, um, so in, in environmentalism, like environmental movements in those regions, there are more um, uh, assertive uh, movements, of course, you know there there are movements that are against uh, oil and gas or f- fossil fuel industries because they are the drivers, um, and then there are movements that are pragmatic. You know that the things that I, I I just described to you about how they are using kind of um, common sense logic uh, to introduce pro environmentalist imageries. Um, and so for me, it's not really the the question of whether I take one side or the other, but it's really um, what was interesting to me was that how people try to interject what they believe to be true or what they believe to be a right thing to do, um, sometimes assertive way, but sometimes in a way that um, is more um, collegial or it's not even the word that I think, I don't know, um, 
really like creative and um, sometimes unexpected. Um, and so the people who receive this kind of imageries, they don't really even know what they're getting into. But eventually what happens is uh, the kinds of outcomes that are um, climate conscious. Okay, so I mentioned there in my you know, last question, one of your case studies said which is Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then you also talk about Darwin in the Northern Territory of Australia, Cleveland, Ohio, and Cape Town in South Africa. So how did you go about choosing those four cities as the ones that you were going to uh, focus your research on? What did those specific cities illustrate for us? Yeah, so for Tulsa, um, it's the case where I learn from disaster management and hazard mitigation. So uh, my key research interest uh, before this book uh, was a lot of disaster uh, planning. Uh, and I was reading uh, articles of um, Goshak. Uh, it's kind of the um, core uh, reading. And uh, he was kind of talking about Tulsa, Oklahoma as the exemplary model for developing spatial form that is disaster uh, resilient. Um, for me, that was kind of interesting because it's kind of the examples that we frequently encounter. You know, we often talk about um, big coastal cities or the cities that we know of. Um, but this is a city that I haven't really, you know, known much about. And um, I just thought that it was interesting. So I was kind of um, dig digging up more information. And I ran into an article that talks about how Tulsa is preparing for climate change, but in a way that is quite different. Um, you know, just really try to emphasize on the extreme climate events and how that affects uh, everyday lives of people. And that really becomes a source of uh, advocating for climate conscious planning. Um, and so I found it interesting uh, and I tried to uh, have more of a comparative, international comparative angle. Um, and um, Darwin came into my mind because it's kind of one of the least, um, you know, so-called developed um, area because, because of the harsh climate. Um, and it is also dependent on um, natural gas industries. And there were a lot of uh, political contentions around uh, whether because um, Darwin, that region recently received a big funding from the federal government, and um, there was speculation that the reason they received the gov government funding, federal government funding, was that they allow uh, the the fracking. Um, and so I thought that maybe I would go there and try to understand what um, what environmentally what environmentalists or environmental activists think of this issue and how they campaign uh, for their ideals. Um, and so, yeah, and, and we can talk about that a little bit more later. Um, uh, as for Cleveland and Cape Town, um, Cleveland, I was really interested in it um, because of the main question of my book is that, you know, how do you um, introduce environmental agendas in the context where it's not sometimes always obvious? Um, and uh, for me, I found that <clears throat> this uh, kind of spatial segregation uh, in that very evident in that area. Um, and also the vacant land problems uh, that are occurring uh, was a good example for me to understand what it's like to you know, pursue um, climate conscious planning. Um, and uh, as for Cape Town, uh, it's also kind of similar lens, but like, you know, like try to understand more 
trans transnational and comparison, try to initiate more trans transnational comparison. Um, that I thought that maybe um, I could uh, compare uh, another city uh, in another context um, and compare that with uh, Cleveland. And obviously, you know, Cape Town is really. Uh, uh, suffers a lot from spatial segregation um, because of its historic uniqueness. And um, I was thinking of, you know, how do I go about this as a visitor? And I decided that, okay, I would talk to the, you know, experts, what, what I would think is experts yeah, in the sense that, you know, the, the planners and environment activists and the people who are early working in that region um, and how they... Um, you know, their narratives and um, uh, write about it um, according to their narratives. Um, and so I think that's how I came up with the cases. But it was, you know, but I, I want to mention that it's kind of a, ran it was a kind of a random process. It really started from Tulsa um, and then Darwin. Um, and then I was kind of looking for other cases where um, other cases that are, haven't really been covered in the mainstream academic literature, because I think whenever I read research articles, um, I read, read a lot of, read a lot about New York. Uh, I read a lot about, um, I don't know, big coastal cities in general, um, but I haven't really encountered uh, a lot of uh, writings on those cities. Um, I obviously, you know, uh, Cape Town uh, has been uh, researched a lot uh, uh, by uh, University of Cape Town, and there are really big, you know, awesome initiatives there. Um, uh, but for me, it's just like putting uh, different cities into the transnational comparative lens uh, was something that I thought I could do as a transnational person. So I think that was the main motivation there. Yeah. I don't know if I'm too, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <I'm> sorry, <laughs> no, that's, yeah. that's good. And, you know, I think you're illustrating the eternal dilemma of case study research, which is, you know, every different case you could pick could show us something interesting and unique. So how do you narrow it down to the specific ones that you choose? And, you know, sometimes you can be real systematic about it, Other, but most of the time, you know, there's a certain amount of inspiration that, you know, goes into deciding, all right, these are the cities that I'm going to write about or, you know, whatever the the cases yeah. are that you're looking at. I think the inspiration is a really uh, good point. I mean, for me, I think I was really inspired by a lot of um, researchers and writers in University of Cape Town, and they talk about this uh, electricity, water, sewer, um, and try to connect that uh, with uh, citywide region resilience. Uh, so uh, for me, I was really just inspired by that work, and therefore I decided to compare it with other you know, cities, etc. So I think that um, the, the writers that I admire um, the the things that I just you know come across randomly or suddenly uh, really affect uh, how I choose the cases. Yep. Yeah, and I think it's you know as important what you get out of the cases than just you know if you picked the right cases in the the beginning, right? Okay, so I want to now circle back around to something that you mentioned in uh, you know your first answer, which is that you're using this ethical perspective that's really bottom up. So you're kind of getting away from having these overarching rules or definitions of the good or something that 
people then would you know conform to that would tell us what to do like you'd have if you had like you know utilitarianism or kantian ethics or something that give this kind of you know big picture universal set of rules for what we should do so you're making an argument that we can sort of root things in our concrete everyday experiences uh, that we have in the world and so you know, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. And then also, you know, sort of my question about it is how do we go from something that, uh, you know, is very concrete and maybe very personal to some sort of a, a plan of action at the level of, you know, citywide policy or something like that? How do we, how do we make the connection between those uh, experiences that our, our ethical perspective might be rooted in to, you know, changing a city law or, you know, whatever the policy outcome might be? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, you know, it's really the question, I think, for any social science research, uh, how do we go about from the situated perspective to more reflected social perspective? Uh, perspective? And um, for me, what I want to emphasize uh, is that probably, I really hope that I, it comes across, but I don't know, I really want to emphasize the the performative power of narratives um, and how we tell stories um, and how we make different kinds of articulations. And as I mentioned before, um, I really, you know, when we do case study research, I'm not really the expert uh, of all cities. You know, it's impossible. I haven't really lived there for, you know, one or, one or two years. And, you know, it's it, it, sometimes it's a choice for me to go to these places and talk to different practitioners and um, how they and how they answer these questions uh, through their practice. So this was something that I was really interested in. You know how they do uh, certain kinds of things that they think they want to do and the questions that I want to ask academically or philosophically. Um, and so by focusing on their narratives, um, the kinds of things that they do. Um, was uh, for me is the possibility of linking the immediate uh, social good with reflected uh, social good. Um, and so creation and generation of new narratives and how we communicate uh, with other people, I think that also is really the part of the words too, you know. So I think the, 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 the question of language and experience and how intertwined they are, and if we could if we can use that um, in everyday planning practice, uh, that's something uh, that we don't really usually talk about, I think, in, in uh, planning academic literature. Um, and so uh, when it comes to um, then how do we connect that uh, discourse narration to um, more policy and action, uh, political uh, action was that um, I think I mentioned probably in the end bits of the chapter five is um, the power of kind of the cultural movements. And it's almost, I think, now I think about it, I think it's kind of connected to um, uh, whose culture or, you know, whose way of being or whose knowing uh, really matters in the world. So if someone wants to initiate something new and they want to create some kind of movement, uh, I think there are really just heterogeneous uh, perspectives of being in the world and knowing the world. So um, that means that there are heterogeneous ways of making culture. Um, so if you can make culture and if you can gain 
mainstream momentum, I think there can be a, a pressure on the politicians and pressure on uh, the um, planning practitioners uh, and the people who make uh, the laws and policies. Um, it kind of becomes this um, more of a social dialogue. Um, so that's why I'm really interested in how each individual, um, assuming that everyone has something to contribute something new uh, as a person, like a unique person who wants to contribute something new and how they try to build more popular or more mainstream movement uh, through different kinds of creative means. And if you, if you build that movement, um, how does it translate? How, how can that be translated into a political action um, is something that I'm interested in. Probably in the future, maybe I should work more on it. But for me, at the moment, I was more interested in that the building of um, of uh, cultural uh, kind of the atmospheric approach to environmentalism. I don't know if I make sense, making sense. No, I think that makes sense. Uh, I was just going to follow up by asking if you could maybe talk about uh, an example of that that you encountered in one of your cities that you were researching. Maybe give us a little more concrete illustration of what that might look like to build that kind of cultural atmosphere or movement around these issues. Yeah. Um, so I think... One of the ways, I, I think there are three ways, mainly three ways. One way is the everyday infrastructure. So, you know, the practitioners in um, Cape Town and practitioners in, in Cleveland, um, they talk a lot about, you know, sewer and stormwater management. So um, really cities are the intensive, uh, kind of centers of intensive material movements. Um, and they can kind of talk about this basic infrastructure, like electricity, wastewater, and sewer systems, uh, to highlight how we are dependent on the ecosystem dynamics. So that's one way. Um, and the other way is to talk about like the topological elements that people sense in the everyday urban living, right? I mean, the mountains and rivers um, and things like that. And as I discussed in the this, uh, the case of Cleveland, um, is that they had a big kind of uh, art exhibition and also there was a big art event about Cuyahoga River and celebrating uh, Cuyahoga River um, and so they invited this uh, international artist uh, called uh, Chego Chang um, and he kind of this performative uh, theatrical uh, event about uh, Cuyahoga lighting um, and really making people aware uh, how our life or you know the leaving the city uh, is dependent on water and, and the Cuyahoga River that has been existed uh, for centuries, uh, even before humans, I don't know, human settlement began. Um, and so all those kind of historical elements of topology um, and uh, mountain water um, and rivers, uh, hills, um, and, you know, I, I kind of talk about that in the, the gondola system in Medellin, um, that all of those transportation infrastructure also dependent on the topological uh, background of the city too. So uh, really highlighting that historical relationship between topological elements um, and uh, human settlement could be also one way. The Finally, the other way is really the agency of built environment and design. And this is where I think I'm quite inspired by um, kind of non-representation theory, like the effect theory, um, and how like a building and architecture and design that you come across or pass um, 
in cities, uh, they can inspire you because it affects your emotion and how you feel or how you perceive uh, you and the surrounding environment. So the agency of uh, buildings and what that makes you feel um, is also one element uh, for cities to enact on this kind of atmospheric approach to environmentalist imageries. Okay. So I now want to change gears a little bit and ask you about scale. So, you know, you're obviously not the first person to suggest that cities are a good scale at which to deal with climate change and, you know, all these other issues that get wrapped up under that label of the Anthropocene. But I think one sort of interesting thing that you do is that you reconceptualize the global scale uh, a little bit so that it's not so much that, you know, if we are thinking at the scale of the city, then we're sort of not being global. We're setting the global part uh, aside. You know, global is too big of a scale to work at. Uh, but you kind of connect in uh, the global scale to the the urban or city scale. So could you talk a little bit about the, the importance of scale and, you know, what it means to address these problems at the, the city scale? Yeah, I think my interest in the the scale itself, it for me, it really began with. Um, I think that's a really great question, by the way. Um, I think it really began with for me trying to grapple with the ecosystem dynamics. Um, you know, so my background is you know hazard mitigation and environmental planning. So I kind of think about what that means in terms of scale. That's kind of the you know there's a tree scale, there's a forest scale, there is a you know a wider ecosystem scale, you know, that there there is a physical element. Um, but what I found out is that there there is a whole different literature, a political ge- geography literature, and it talks about the political scales of how intertwined um, you know city city politicians are influenced by global politics uh, and vice versa. And all of these uh, networks of political scale is there too. Um, and I kind of try to gl- grapple with why would that side of political uh, geography would matter to um, ecosystem uh, scale and what ecosystem scale can teach uh, to uh, the political geography uh, understanding of political uh, politics of scale. So um, for me, uh, what was useful uh, from the literature of Latour is that he kind of describes global as globally ubiquitous. So it's not really about global as in the you know Archimedean globe that you have on your desk, uh, you know the, the globe, um, but more about the globalness of uh, ubiquitousness globalness as ubiquitousness uh, of the things that we interact, you know, like the water, air, you know, all of these things are ubiquitous. Um, Internet, um, uh, you know, you name it. A lot of things that we share um, in the world uh, is ubiquitous. Um, And so, um, and John Dewey also says that, you know, we, if we think about global problems, we have to start from our own backyard, you know, our own garden. And um, I think in that understanding of global as ubiquitousness, you can link uh, what's global with local. Um, local in the sense that you can immediately sense what's going on. You can immediately sense what's going on in your garden. How are you going to plant something? How they're going to grow well? Uh, you know, there is uh, the question of care. Um, and then it also matters that that experience of uh caring your back 
backyard um, can be connected to a wider perception of your responsibility uh, to uh, wider forces or the, the things that are uh, larger. Um, uh, but that's kind of the, but I think that's kind of the procedural thing. So um, I think uh, the, the main argument is that ubiquitousness, how that helps us to understand how local can also be global. Um, but probably what I, I think what I failed to touch on is really the connection uh, of like the process of building that. Um, and um, I think there is a new discussion right now uh, about what's the, what's the geography of a responsibility, you know, responsibility of your own um, community and uh, your own city. And that really goes to the international too, you know, all of these things that Nancy Fraser talks about of uh, different scales of responsibility. Um, I think that's uh, really up to us to talk about. Um, I think it's a long process of talking about my responsibility to the environment here and now uh, and the, the longer term responsibility of us, uh, even as human species, to talk about it. But I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a big topic, so I don't think I kind of represent it very well, I don't really know, but um, I think that thinking of uh, environmental issues as globally ubiquitous, um, I think it's something that uh, helps us understand why global can be connected with the local. I don't know, does it make sense? I don't know. Yeah, it, and I was actually going to say, you know, you mentioned Latour a couple times in this uh, interview, and I've been kind of a Latour skeptic for a long time, but your book has actually kind of sold me on Latour having some useful things to say. Um, you know, there are a few times when you said something i was like oh that's a really good idea oh hey you're building on the tour with that that's interesting um so i might have to go reread his stuff uh you know with a, a new new eye to it after uh having seen what you do uh in your book so but 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 i want to mention that latour really draws a lot from john dewey so um i think people who are interested in latour have to read john dewey to understand um, more the political, you know, side of ANT. I think that's that's what I wanted to, yeah, mention. <laughs> well, so that's actually probably why your book is like selling me on the tour because I've been a John Dewey fan for a while, oh, uh, mm-hmm. and so I think if you're you're kind of showing the connections between, you know, one of my favorite and one of my least favorite uh, <laughs> writers. So. <laughs> It's making me reevaluate things a little bit. Um, oh, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome to meet a friend of Dewey. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then I also wanted to ask about your process for doing the research for the book. So you did a whole bunch of interviews with planners and activists and other stakeholders in these four cities. So what were some of the, the challenges and the surprises that you encountered while doing the actual data gathering part of the research? Yeah, one of the challenge is really up to um, the people that I meet. Like, if I meet someone who is the node of the network, uh, he's gonna introduce me, or she, or they, 
will introduce me uh, with uh, the bunch of people that they know. So uh, in Tulsa, I kind of, you know, try to contact one person who's a disaster planning um, expert who's been mentioned in newspapers several times. I tried to contact him uh, and then I tried to contact the other person who's more uh, expertise in recycling. Um, and that the recycling person uh, helped me um, go to different kinds of events. Um, so there are different events that are he was going and um, that I was invited to uh, and etc. So I was quite lucky. Um, I think in Darwin, I think it was a bit more challenging because I think um, people there were um, uh, try to appreciate more the, the you know, I think, uh, you know, the, the local the local researchers and academics and which is really, you know, I think that's really important, you know, because I'm transnational visitor. So, you know, I'm always aware of that. Um, but I still managed to um, talk to city personals. Um, and uh, there was one guy who connected me to uh, two or three environmental activists. Um, and that was really useful too. But, you know, the all really began from the internet research uh, of finding who seems to be the connection um, uh, in newspaper articles or, or the things that, that are happening. Um, and Cleveland, and Cleveland, I was really lucky because I, you know, the same way I kind of contacted different environmental organizations and one of them got back to me and they invited me to um, big events uh, on environmentalism. Um, and how that's how I got hooked up with different people. Um, and uh, in Cape Town, um, I just kind of attended one of the research research uh, meeting of a different colleague, um, but he introduced me to uh, one city official and that person became the node for me because she knew so many people on that environmental planning. So then I got hooked onto it. So I think it's um, sometimes it often begins with the newspaper article search um, uh, and uh, try to find a person who seems to be the main actor and try to, you know, follow the actors as uh, Latour says. Um, uh, but in case of, I think Cape Town was more about, I, uh, it was through some connections that my colleague had, and then I kind of built uh, my connections through them. So um, I, I think what I really learned from this research is really about how all of this is um, human connections and interactions in general. You know, like I think I kind of took on a different approach as opposed to um, other academic research in that sense that I try to like meet with people who are doing the work um, uh, as opposed to, I mean, I, I, there are a lot of academic researchers doing that, but uh, what I meant to say is that, you know, it's not like um, I'm trying to uh, yeah, draw um, the objective um, kind of static picture of what was happening. For me, I was just really interested in people talking and interacting with the people who um, was um, doing the work. Um, and so I think that really made me realize what um, is important in inquiry. Um, uh, and pragmatists, you know, try to reframe research into social inquiry because we, we think that knowledge making is not um, taking a picture, uh, a static 
picture of what's going on, but more about interacting uh, with different kinds of people. And that's how you gain um, the value for your knowledge making. Um, And so I think what really taught me uh, was that I really have to go out in the world more um, and my knowledge making should be intertwined with um, uh, how uh, practitioners uh, do their work. And I think that's something that I don't do. And I think that's something that I should do more. So I think I was guilty of that myself, you know, trying to capture the objective reality. And um, I tried to move away from that uh, towards more of the engagement with the real world. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm yeah. sense. <laughs> no, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, and so it's kind of a good segue then into our final question, which is to ask what you're working on next. What kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out? Yeah, so um, I'm really interested in kind of post-Western epistemologies uh, inspired by Anna Ching, you know. So Anna Ching kind of talks about the uh, the Western approach to environmentalism that is kind of uh, the humans are evil, so we have to control their behavior. Um, and they, she kind of compares that with Japanese Santoyama practice where um, the environmentalism is more about uh, finding out what nature or culture through uh, interaction um, um, so the kind of intertwinement uh, of uh, nature and culture uh, and the co-evolution process of, you know, uh, learning and co-inhabiting. Um, so I'm really interested in how this kind of post-Western epistemologies um, affects how we do uh, contemporary urban research in Global East and Global South. So I'm trying to work with um, different non-Western urbanists uh, who do the similar work in the sense that we value local conventions and cultures in studying um different regions. Um, And the other work that I'm doing is um, the relationship between uh, identity uh, and local politics and where environment sits in between the two. Uh, And so um, I talk about how like problematic situations like waste management or extreme climate events become opportunities for multicultural communities to come out of their ontological bubble um, by collectively addressing the public issues at hand. Okay, well, that all sounds really exciting. And we'd love to have you back if you end up writing a book about uh, that (laughs) stuff. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Stenter. So you just heard a conversation with Inji John, author of Cities in the Anthropocene, New Ecology and Urban Politics, published this year by Pluto Press.